When someone has your back in sports, we call it teamwork. Knowing someone's ready to help you out on the road, that has a name too, and that name is OnStar. If you've ever been faced with something as terrible as vehicle theft, OnStar can help. OnStar has the power of stolen vehicle slowdown. It's a feature that enables an advisor to work with law enforcement to get your stolen ride back, slowing down your vehicle enough so that authorities have a chance to apprehend the crook who took it. OnStar can get your vehicle back to you quicker and safer. If you're ever faced with a theft, you can turn to OnStar because at a moment like that, the last thing you want is to be alone. Get OnStar on your team today. OnStar, be safe out there. OnStar is available on Chevrolet, Buick, GMC, and Cadillac. Requires select paid plan, cell reception, GPS signal, and working electrical system. Doesn't prevent theft, damage, or loss. Details at OnStar.com. From ESPN Films, you're listening to 30 for 30 Podcasts. My name is Jody Avergan. To celebrate the 10th anniversary of 30 for 30, we're revisiting some of our series' most beloved documentaries. Today, a look at a film that has had a major impact in the real world, which is one of the goals of this series, to look at films and how they've changed over time. This has had an impact far beyond the world of sports. I remember getting called to assemblies like this to listen to some 35-year-old man talk to me about substance abuse. And I remember saying to myself, why am I here? I'll never be that guy. And today I would give anything to get back to 1994 and listen. Chris Heron was a standout high school basketball star in his hometown of Fall River, Massachusetts, about an hour south of Boston. He played point guard for Boston College and Fresno State. When he turned pro, he was drafted by the Denver Nuggets and later traded to his favorite team, the Boston Celtics. But his promising basketball career was cut short at every turn by his battle with drug addiction. Fall River's Chris Heron will appear in court next month on drug charges. Police found empty packages that contained heroin residue in his car. In the 30 for 30 film Unguarded, Heron's turbulent life unfolds through a series of motivational speeches that he started giving as he became sober in 2008. Big-time basketball players been in Rolling Stone magazine, Sports Illustrated, NBA, Boston Celtics, Denver Nuggets. And I'm on a street corner hawking jewelry. I've had four overdoses. I have seven felonies on my record that I don't... The film documents his complicated relationship with basketball and his hometown and describes the accident that ultimately made him turn his life around. Three miles away from where I shot that heroin, I was found crashed in my vehicle. Ambulance came and brought me back to life. When I looked at the police officer and he put cuffs on me, he said, homeboy, you've been dead for 30 seconds. Today, Chris Heron has been sober for over 10 years. His story is truly inspiring. He's someone who's devoted his life to helping others. In recent years, he has worked as a motivational speaker. He's also founded the Heron Project, a nonprofit that delivers addiction treatment services. He's here in the studio to talk about Unguarded and a new project that he's been working on with Unguarded director Jonathan Hawk. Chris Heron, thanks for coming in and thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thinking back to Unguarded, was it hard to say yes to doing that? What was the process like of coming to say, okay, I'm going to open up and I'm going to let someone tell my story, but sort of point the camera at the mm. hardest parts of my life? I mean, was that hard? Yeah, of course. it's always hard. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, but I, I wrote a book yeah. prior and the book was much more grueling. Um, 
So I was prepared for it. I didn't really know the impact it would have. To be quite honest with you, I was so deep in my addiction for so long that I was unaware of iTunes and Netflix. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I really had no idea that this was going to have the legs it's had over the years. I thought it was going to air one night and it would be gone. Um, Fortunately, it's been around for a while. And I I do want to get to some of that impact. But on the film, making the film itself, did making the film feel like part of recovery in a sense? Um, It amped it up. I mean, there's no doubt when there's a camera pointed at you. It really captured the first six months of telling my story. Um, so I was very new at public speaking. Right. So it was very raw and brutally honest. You know, and over the years, I've changed the style of the way I tell it. But I think the 30 for 30 captured me at its most vulnerable and uh, most transparent and rawest moment. Now I went into that emergency room and they looked at me with disgust and I was just another junkie. You know, the best option for me, I was tired, man. I was tired of dragging my kids through the mud. I was tired of dragging my wife through the mud. I didn't, could care less about me anymore. And uh, I said, I'm going to end my life today. Yeah, I mean, that was what I think is one of the most powerful things about it. It's like you when you see you speaking, especially in those early... Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was just the first few times you've done that is what we're seeing in the film. But it doesn't feel like, oh, here's someone talking about a chapter in their life that's closed. Mm. It's like, here is someone processing the end of a chapter, you know, or an ongoing story kind right. of in real time. The chapter never closes. You know, that's that's the one thing about addiction is that chapter is always open. Um, you know, your addiction and your recovery is something that evolves and never goes away. So yeah, there's no past tense telling it like I'm through it, I'm beyond it. I'm very present, even today you know, at 10 years sober. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about basketball a little bit. Unguarded talks to some of your friends and family who played basketball with you when you were in high school. And one of your friends says that there was just an enormous amount of pressure on you as a 14 or 15 year old because you were so good, but also just because of the nature of that community and what that basketball team meant to that community. At that time, did you like, did you feel that pressure? Oh, did you of recognize course. That? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you walk into a gym at 14 years old and there's 3000 people, 4,000 people coming to see you play, um, that's a pretty big stage for a 14-year-old. And Durfee basketball was the heartbeat of Fall River. Fall River was this mill town, and it was kind of a dying mill town. And basketball was one of the few things that gave Fall River a sense of self, a sense to feel good about. Chrissy comes along, and we never had anybody that talented, no one. As good a player at the high school level that I think ever can be imagined. He was the future, he was the hope. In Fall River, that came with a price tag. The burden of the city fell on his back. That's a that's a that's a big thing to ask of a 14, 15 year old kid. You know, growing up as a kid, I didn't want to be a Celtic. I wanted to be a Hilltopper. <laughs> I mean, that was really my goal. I had my brother and family members who played before me. It was in the family, so the pressure was already baked in at a very early age. Um, but I was as fragile as. As a lot of kids out there, uh, knowing what I was going to face as I entered high school. Right. Well, I mean, is that where your talk like connects with just, quote unquote, average 
14-year-old because not everyone has the experiences you had of being incredibly good at basketball and being part of this community where that mattered. But kind of everyone has the experience of being a 14-year-old who doesn't know how to deal with the world. You know, I often say like, you know, I was a McDonald's All-American and I I scored 2,000 points in high school and I was recruited by every school in the country and I played in front of 4,000 people. But on Friday night, I couldn't be, I couldn't spend time with 20 kids in a basement. You know, I struggled with that. Um, I was always curious about my teammates that didn't get drunk on a Friday night. You know, and those teammates were always looked at as soft, you know, didn't want to hang. But there was always a part of me that was curious and would say to myself, how come they don't have to when I do? Hmm. Like, why do I have to get like this in this atmosphere? And was it just that no one had ever said there's another way? To you? Yeah, you know, I mean, no, no, I don't think I don't think that's the case. I just think the insecurities that I had along the way, it was part of the process for me. You know, my dad's uh, is an alcoholic. My parents' marriage was on the rocks when I was 14 years old. You know, I pretended to be tough. I pretended to be cool. You know, and that's basically the the direction I've taken my talk is that pretending process in my early teenage years that, that really, that affected me. It stayed with me for a long time. I was probably a freshman in high school when I started drinking. I was a freshman in high school when I started smoking pot. You know, there's always some sort of trouble we're getting into, whether it was fighting or drinking, partying in the woods. You went out when you played, and they played harder when the game was done. It was swept under the rug as long as you were winning. It was accepted as long as you were winning. I thought a lot about kind of the balance between personal choices and the kind of systems that then enable bad behavior or aren't there to help someone who's going through a rough patch. I mean, where do you come down on balance about your personal choices and your personal mistakes versus not having the support network that you needed at crucial time? I remember going to Boston College and... Uh, you know, I was 19. I was doing coke. I don't think they were really prepared to deal with that, especially being a local kid. Back in 1994, I mean, I just got done doing a Sports Illustrated. I was, I was the yeah. feature, and now I'm, I've fallen. Fail my first drug test. Couple weekends pass. Fail my next drug test. Three months into my Boston College career, I'm on the cover of all the newspapers with cocaine across my face. You know, he, he was like a villain. I mean, he was just a kid whose parents were divorced who needed to get help, you know, right away. They were very, as I recall, punitive, you know. It was a punitive way to deal with it. Um, we're going to suspend you, and then we're going to release you. Drugs had now just taken everything from me that I had worked for up to 18 years old. And I got a phone call from Jerry Tarkanian in Fresno, California, and said, listen, I want you to come with me. I'm going to give you a second chance. And I took it. Fresno played a much more therapeutic role in it. And I think the therapeutic way was what I uh, remember most. When did you first start to get a sense that, like, oh, this film is connecting with people? When my phone crashed on the night it aired probably you know but everything shut down my social media shut down the email server shut down um and then i started getting responses from people all over the world i mean now it played in australia last week and in ireland and 
you know, when people reach out to you all over the world, that it, it resonates with them. And most families can identify with some type of struggle. So what's your current relationship with basketball? I mean, can you just get on a court and enjoy no, it? No, no, no. I don't enjoy it at all. I mean, my son plays basketball. I don't really enjoy watching it. It Basketball has served me in many ways. I believe it taught me the things that sports is supposed to teach kids to be a teammate, to be committed. But it also, it, I didn't get enjoyment out of it. It wasn't something that I, you know, where most kids or some kids will say it was my escape. Mm -hmm. It was never my escape. Um, I knew I was good at it. I knew people liked to watch me do it, but it wasn't something that I particularly enjoyed. But then is there also a level of like basketball was the thing that's also got you in trouble or positioned you to get in trouble? You know, I mean, listen, it, it, do I blame basketball? No. Do I think um, do I think it played a part in my trouble? Probably to a certain extent. I, you know, there was there was a part of me that wanted to escape it. There was a part of me that, you know, didn't embrace it. Um, you know, like I told my son last night, who's a freshman in college who's at the end of his first season and he's tired, you know, he's emotionally and mentally exhausted. And I said, I remember being in college and spraining my ankle and being relieved that I didn't have to play for four games, wow. you know, and cause I knew I had a break. And when you love something, you don't look forward to that. It, it was kind of a uh, love hate relationship yeah. with me from a very early age. Up next, more with Chris Heron, including his new project. Thirty for Thirty podcast is brought to you by Delta Airlines. Delta flies to three hundred cities around the world. That's three hundred cities where everyone does the same things you do. That's three hundred cities where the people in those three hundred cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. Three hundred cities where people miss someone in one of the other two hundred ninety nine cities. Three hundred cities where people sing in the car or in the shower or both poorly. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring us together, but to show us we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. 30 for 30 podcasts are brought to you by State Farm. Whether in the game of basketball or in life, having an MVP on your side makes all the difference. In basketball, a multi-talented elite playmaker who can be called upon in crunch time not only helps the team succeed, but makes the players around them better. In life, your State Farm agent strives to be your MVP, ready to come through in the clutch when you need it the most. Whether it's buying a new home, coping with a car accident, or building the foundation for your future, you can feel confident knowing you don't have to go it alone. With a State Farm agent on your team, you'll be well prepared for whatever life brings your way. So we're back and we'll get back to our conversation with Chris Heron in a moment. But in the meantime, I want to talk about a new project from Heron and Unguarded director Jonathan Hawk. This year, the two teamed up once again for a new film. It's called The First Day. Six years ago, I would have walked in and I would have told you my story. What I've learned is my story is not enough. That you kids, you deserve way more than just a story. We focus on the worst day, and we forget the first day. If I asked this school to walk into this assembly today with pictures of drug addicts, if I asked you today, 
come prepared with a picture of a drug addict in your pocket. 95% of you would have brought a picture of a person in the final stage of their life because of drug addiction. Why? What, you don't think we start somewhere? You think we look like that from day one? I will say that this new film is incredibly moving. It's built entirely around one of Chris Heron's talks, and it's just as much, if not more, about the impact on the audience as it is about Chris and his story himself. There are very few people that I've seen who can connect with an audience the way that Chris does, and I asked the director, Jonathan Hawk, about the first day and why he wanted to revisit this story, revisit Chris, and make a new film. Was there something in this film that you are able to touch on that you weren't able to get to in the first one? Yeah, th- this film is a sequel in a sense. It's not a continuation of Chris's story, although it is in the sense that it's documenting what he's doing now. Uh, but, you know, I've been asked a million times, when are you going to do a sequel on Chris Heron? When are you going to, what's, how's he doing now? Yeah. Well, so Chris is speaking to young people all over the country and he is as incredible as he was when he was new at it. Now it's a totally different level. It's unbelievable. But the thing is, Chris is no longer telling his own story. What he has discovered speaking to kids about addiction and prevention is that what the kids need to hear is their own story. They need Chris to give them the feedback of their own story so they can see themselves with clarity in terms of their drug and alcohol use and where their lives are heading. Dear Mr. Heron, I was the girl with her hand up. I didn't have a question that day. For the first time in my life, I wanted to tell my story. Mr. Heron, my father's a drunk. He's an alcoholic. He has been my whole life. My mom, she suffers from depression. And for the last four years, my father's drunk on the couch. My mom is upstairs in her bedroom with the door closed. So, Mr. Heron, I go to my bedroom, I lock my door, I put my music on, I take my homework out. And I do the one thing, the one thing that's helped me through my day. And I cut myself really bad. I'm a cutter, Mr. Heron. So this film is not part two of the Chris Heron story. This film is Chris Heron presenting the story of young Americans and drugs and alcohol in the present day uh, through a presentation. And we filmed dozens of presentations he made um, and edited them together into a single presentation. So when we were filming these presentations Chris gave, I realized that the, you know, Chris is super compelling to look at, but it's the kids. Yeah. The faces of the kids were extraordinary. And I remembered a film I had seen years ago by Robert Drew, who was with the Maisels Brothers, probably the founder of Cinema Verite in America. In 1963, he was assigned to film, to do a film about the Kennedy funeral, President Kennedy's funeral in 1963. And in the film, there's only one shot of the funeral cortege. And the entire rest of the film are the faces of the people who came out to the funeral. Mm-hmm. Because Robert Drew realized the story wasn't the president going to his final resting place. The story was what he left behind. And 
when I saw these kids that Chris was speaking to and their faces, I said, oh, that's how I have to do this film. And we, so the film is much more the faces of the kids and the story of the kids that Chris is speaking to. And I'm really, really glad we're having the opportunity to show it on ESPN. This assembly is not easy and it shouldn't be. This assembly is about you, not me. Anybody can walk in here and show you a 30-minute movie and tell you their life story. I want you to forget my story and think of yours. Did you always have like a good speaking presence? Where did that come from? I have no idea, to be quite honest with you. I think it really just, it, it kind of morphed out of passion for this topic, you know? Um, the purpose it's given me in life, you know? Un- unguarded changed my life. It changed my family's life. I mean, on so many levels. And it's impacted so many people. Like it plays in every treatment center in America. Every high school I walk into, a health teacher will say, I play unguarded every year. So it's changed my life drastically. And I believe that anytime you're in front of children, you got to give it your best. I mean, does it feel like you kind of, this is a new project for you to throw yourself into in the same way that you were in a gym until 3 a.m. shooting jumpers? You're kind of like honing this as your craft? Oh, no doubt. I think I think you have to. Um, you know, I, I was very meticulous as, as like, you know, what what talking points are, are resonating and and you know, the emails I'm receiving, what are they focused on? Um, and, you know, so there, along the way, I've pulled things and, and removed them from my talk and just added things. Um, you know, this is an evolving issue and there's so many components to it. There's mental health, you know, there's self-harm, there's bullying, um, social media, uh, you know, all of this plays into this culture that kids are feeling that they have to be part of or feel left out of. Um, so, you know, I've changed the way I, I talk, um, in front of, in front of kids. Uh, I no longer tell my story. Um, I tell bits and pieces of it, but I try to speak their, you know, to speak their language. And is that just something you've kind of learned over time as, as you've just gotten better at this yeah, profession of yours? You know, if you look at Unguarded, it was very, uh, you know, it was driven to almost, I, I, I don't want to say scare, right? Yeah. Um, that's what kids are callous to that. Like, right. Well, there is a little bit of that, like scared straight thing. And I think of the, thinki- the thinking around that, like, you know, people of a certain age went through like dare and all that mm-hmm. scared straight stuff. And I think the thinking on that has changed a bit. Just in general, we realize that kind of stuff doesn't really work as well. It has to, it has to change. And, and listen, I still tell my story because I started this to speak to people who are struggling from addiction. That's the whole purpose of Unguarded was to speak to an audience who are struggling with substance use, right? And, and to show them that um, there is opportunity, there is a way out of this, that it's not a death sentence. Did you just say substance use, not Substan- abuse? No, no. Is it, yeah. why, why is that? It's just, it, you know, there's so many things in the language around recovery that I think is demeaning. You know, I think the word abuse is, not, is unnecessary. Hmm. You know, so substance use disorder is much more... Um, to me is much kinder, much more gentle than, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a drug addict or, uh, I suffer from substance abuse, you know, uh, it's too, to me, it's, 
that's that's part of my uh, you know what I'm doing today is is trying to change the language of this. You know, words like rock bottom. I mean, t- there's not an illness in America that uses the word rock bottom. You talk about the people who send you notes or they come up to you afterwards. I mean, there are, is there a particular kind of feedback that just like pops out when you're doing that many? Yeah, you know, it's just it's anytime you're dealing with children, anytime a kid raises their hand and says, "My my mom died from the drug you did." Um, uh, anytime you meet a kid who's lost both parents because of heroin overdoses and they're looking you in the eyes and they're, you can, you can literally see, like, I, I wish you were my dad. You know, I really wish you could be my father. Um, because they don't have them. Drugs have, have robbed them of, of their childhood and, and, and their parents. Um, so when you open up emails from kids about suicide and self-harm and, and sexual abuse and, and, um, and the trauma they go through, I mean, that's in you forever. But is it still part of the project of taking care of yourself? I mean, you said this is never over. No. I, listen, there's times it takes care of me. There's times it has a, an effect on me. Um, you know, it's exhausting. Yeah. You know, I mean, just doing for you. I mean, anytime you sit down in a chair and you've got to be on for an hour. Um, when you walk into a school in Chicago and there's 4,500 kids in a gym, and it's your turn to keep these kids engaged and quiet and focused. I don't know how many of you in here have a mom or dad that you wish would stop. I don't know how many of you in here have been affected by alcohol or drugs. I watched my mom's heart break over it. I watched my parents divorce because of it. And if you're anything like me, I remember laying in that bed as a little boy crying at night and saying to myself, I promise, man. I broke that promise when I was 14 years old when I started drinking my daddy's Miller Lights. A typical week, I'm out on the road Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday um, speaking. Mm -hmm. So anywhere between six to seven speaking events a week. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, there was a stretch where I was doing 200 to 250 a year. So, you know, I played 82 games in the NBA, and I'm tripling that in speaking events. Yeah. There's a lot of energy and emotion that's expended doing that. But Uh, do you worry that it's going to make you more vulnerable then? Of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. There's been multiple times that it's made me vulnerable. I mean, that would be the the tragedy or the irony of ironies. Yeah. Yeah. No, of course. But, you know, I have such great people. Um, around me that we've, we discuss this stuff, yeah. you know, that maybe I have the foot on the gas too hard right now and it's time to pull back. We've been talking about you and your work and Unguarded, but like, you know, it is the 10th anniversary of 30 for 30. I'm just curious, do you kind of think of yourself as part of this larger series or? You know, listen, I've shared with, with the people here that allowed me to tell my story that I'm forever grateful because it's again and i've said it in this interview it's changed my life and it's changed my family's life but i mean 30 for 30 has been a platform for so many you know it's it's a it's a look inside of someone's world that normally people wouldn't see you know i love them all you know i go to aa and i get my chips and i'm proud of them little chips i saved every single one of them 
my son loved them, and he put them in his bedroom right by his nightstand, and he had them all there. And, you know, every once in a while, he would say to me, when are you getting that next one? Chris Heron is a former NBA player and subject of the films Unguarded and The First Day. We also heard from Jonathan Hawk, who is the director of Unguarded, The First Day, and five other 30 for 30 films. We actually did an episode with him about those other films as part of this series, so go check it out if you haven't heard it already. Unguarded and all of John Hawk's films are available in the ESPN app. And First Day has been running on ESPN on TV. Its next airing is Sunday, August 11th at 3 p.m. actually on ABC. For more information about the film, you can go to thefirstdayfilm.com. That's thefirstdayfilm.com. Up next in our anniversary series, we mix it up a bit. Some of our favorite other podcasters at ESPN recommend some of their favorite films. I feel like this might be an unusual choice. All these guys are in Dallas as the oil industry is booming and as all the money is coming in. It's about basketball and basketball is my life. That's coming up next. Be sure to tune in. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30. 